0: Okay. Oh my! It works. That's fantastic. Okay, so this is the seventh original sermon I've given so far this week. I've been sick for five days of the last ten, and um, when I woke up this morning and opened up the Word document that is my sermon, it was empty. So I had a couple things working against me, but um, but I have preached on this passage before because I really um, I really. L- I um, think it's a very clear illustration of stuff that happens to us spiritually. So, yeah. So let's say, let's pray for God's help. Father, we pray that you'd give your Holy Spirit now to us to hear your word. We pr- I pray that you would mediate it faithfully through my personality that I would preach your word and that you would bring it home and drive it to in our hearts. I pray that we would all feel the sword going in this morning and we would also feel the comfort and encouragement of your love. Teach us, correct us, and encourage us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I had a job when I was in seminary at a place called Hewitt Associates, which is in Deerfield, Illinois, and um, almost all the people who worked there as security guards were seminary students at Trinity, because it was a way to get paid for studying, basically, which… If you've ever done most of your studying between midnight and 7 a.m., you realized how that doesn't really work as well as you'd hoped. But um, that was the case. And I was on shift for a number of nights with a guy who was doing his Ph.D. in Old Testament Studies at Trinity. And he was sort of a bombastic um, fellow. He was in his his early 40s. And um, Anyway... We were talking about church one day, and um, you'd be surprised how many seminary students don't care for church. Um, about, you know, about half of us got into ministry because we had such bad church experiences. So there was one time where we were talking about some of his experience, and he says, you know what, one of, the, Nick, one of the things you have to realize, you're young and you don't know this yet, but one of the things you have to realize is that nobody will stand up and fight for the gospel, for the church. They would just rather not fool with it. They'll, they'll fight over everything but the right things. You go to church. Church is a fight. People will fight. They'll fight over everything but the right thing. And when it comes down to standing by a leader who's not as cool as another guy, but who's right and standing on scripture, th- nobody's going to back that guy up. It just—it doesn't. People don't do it. And um. And that was one of the reasons why he was going into PhD work instead of into past- and leaving pastoral ministry. And I was like, well, dude, then you got to get in there and <laughs> you got to get in there and fight. You know, but one of the reasons I asked him, I said, why do you think people don't fight when they should, only when they shouldn't? And he said, I just think, I think most Christians are just spineless, frankly. They'll stand up and they'll fight when their preferences are challenged because everybody, everybody will fight their preferences. But when it comes down to something that they don't have any personal, direct, immediate interest in, but that is important because God said it was, they're not gonna fight over that. They're not going to spill their blood for something that doesn't immediately touch their own fancies and perceptions. And I was like, huh, okay. But you know what? I think there's another reason this happens. It's because people don't know when it's time to fight. Uh, A few months ago, Lexi and I were watching the John Adams miniseries, HBO did. Remember that? Did you see that? And um, one of the conflicts in right before the revolution began was that all these different Americans were trying to figure out if the time had come to fight. And there were some people who thought the time who come to fight had long passed. There's some people who thought, well, we're sort of getting there. There were some people who saw that Britain had repealed the Stamp Act and a couple things, so they thought, well, we're moving in the direction of reformation, so we shouldn't jump in and fight right now. And then there were other people who were thinking, well, they haven't actually broken any direct laws, so we don't have the legal, and therefore the moral right to fight. That would be illegitimate moral rebellion. We can't do it. John Adams was in that category for a while. And so the problem that the revolutionaries had, though, is, is that unless there is some decisive event that brings everybody there, you never have a revolution. Reform never happens. Nobody ever stands up and fight because it's, everybody decides it's time to fight at a different moment. The only way you can have reform that has a surge behind it is that at some point, everybody goes, yep, gotta do it. We've got it. And so sometimes there's some event that brings people together. But the problem in, in, um, in what happens a lot of times is good corrupting, leaders who are good at corrupting do it very slow, very strategically, very carefully, so that people never find, fo- they make very careful that there isn't ever a coalescing event or one issue on which it's very clear. Everybody goes, oh yeah, definitely. There it is. And when you come to this whole issue with Jeroboam, if we look at just Jeroboam this morning, it's just a rerun of Saul. That's all it is, except Jeroboam's worse. Essentially, Jeroboam gets in a situation, right? The Israel splits into two nations. You've got, you've got Judah down here and Israel up here, the other 10 tribes. And there's the Israel's political allegiance is to Jeroboam, Right? but their spiritual allegiance is still in Jerusalem, in Judah. And so what, what Jeroboam is afraid of is, is that the, the, apparently the Feast of Tabernacles was coming up, so all these people from his country were going to go down into the other country that they used to be give their allegiance to, and they were going to celebrate this big festival. And he's like, you know, what, when they get down there, they're going to realize this whole thing is wrong. They're going to say, wait a second, this is where the temple is. This is where God's present dw- presence dwells. This is the center of the rightful kingdom of Israel, of all of us. Yeah, we don't like Rehoboam, but this isn't right. This whole thing, the split, it's wrong. And then the only way that they can get back into Jeroboam's good graces is what? Bring Rehoboam's head, basically. <laughs> right? He's like, this is not going to go well for me. So what he does is he sets up an alternate religious system that's similar— to the system God set up, but completely different in terms of what it meant, its vitality, what it taught, how it worked. So that though it resembled true religion, its effect was the opposite. It, did, it wasn't just a religion God didn't bless. It was a form of worship that infuriated him. In fact, um, Jeroboam's great legacy is he is the guy always named as the one that destroyed everything. If you read through the rest of 1 and 2 Kings and Chronicles, he's mentioned 13 times in reference to other kings. A new king comes on the scene, and the way that king is described as stinking up the place was he didn't repent of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. In fact, at the very end of when when Israel finally goes into exile and is totally destroyed— Um, the way that whole thing is laid out is because they never turned back from what Jeroboam led them into. So instead of just recapping what I said when we talked about Saul a few weeks back, um, what I want to focus on this morning is the people. Because a lot of times the way we look at the people of Israel in the Old Testament, As we go, oh, the poor people of Israel, they had bad leaders. Didn't they have bad leaders? Poor people. But one of the things that we have to recognize is that God really never lets the congregation of people off the hook because the leadership is good or bad. In fact, when you look at the way the people of God are discussed in the Old Testament, um, God is always selecting and instituting extremely laissez-faire forms of structure and leadership. Um, The structure of government and religion in the Old Testament is as far away from totalitarianism as you can get. And one of the reasons for that seems to be that God expected individual people to not need to be dramatically governed because the gospel, the promise, the law, the truth would govern them. And he was unwilling to institute other mechanisms of enforcement and coercion because his people were people who had a law. They had been told what was good, true, beautiful, praiseworthy, noble. They had, been, they had been shown. It had been given to them. It had been expressed to them. They, there were a specific group of people who were there to teach it to them, but there was nobody put in charge at the beginning to enforce it on them because they were to enforce it within their own community, right? Who was supposed to stone whoever was supposed to be stoned in the Old Testament? The whole community was supposed to do it, right? Everybody had a responsibility. And who was supposed to take responsibility for doing what the law said? Each individual person. Because throughout the Old Testament, there's this focus on individual responsibility before God, even as part of the wider community of God. And in fact, the political founding fathers of America saw the origins of American individualism in the Anglo Saxon government. And in the Judeo-Christian tradition, particularly in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. These passages. So let's ask this question then this morning about Jeroboam. So we don't just recap Saul. How does the congregation of people, how does the nation prepare themselves to know when to rebel? How does the nation see to it that we put ourselves in a position as a congregation so we know how to prevent corruption and when to rebel against it when we see it? Right? I'm sorry if you're sitting there thinking I'm preaching this 12 years late. Um, But I I think— a lot of people assume that in order to get involved in sort of the upper tiers of leadership and figuring out what has to happen here and there, and that's what elders do, and that's what, that you've got to have some kind of very specific, very technical, very obscure, very detailed knowledge. And that's not true. That's not true. It is not true. You have to be some kind of religious expert to know when corruption is happening. There are very telltale signs, and God is extremely direct. And no matter how slick Jeroboam was, and he was slick, these people should have smelled this out immediately. Immediately. But they didn't. Because they didn't know the gospel. They didn't understand why worship was worshipped the way it was supposed to be. They didn't understand the mechanisms of leadership God had put in place and what the requirements and characteristics were. They didn't know those things. And they, they were, those were three basic things. And because they didn't know them, guess where they went? To Assyria eventually. And friends, if you, we just look around at the history of the church generally, and churches in specific, do we see a normal progression from... a sort of lukewarm, irreligion, ignorance to a white, hot love of Jesus, fully informed about the scriptures and the gospel and the doctrine, that the normal—over the normal passage of time, people get learn more about God, they become more passionate about Him, they walk with Him more deeply, they reject sin more completely? Or do we see just the opposite in the normal passage of time? We see the opposite, right? Look at all the major—all the major educational institutions in America that are the most opposed to Christianity. What were they all founded by? gospel-believing, inerrant Bible-believing in Christians, right? The natural flow of things is not towards devotion, towards obedience. It's, a, it's away from it. And so if we don't want to sled down that hill, it's, I think it's fair for us to say that we have to be hiking. How do we make sure we're being led in the right direction? And now, friends, let me dwell on this just a second longer. This is all the more important at a church that desires to be, in terms of its government, congregational. <laughs> right? We are a church that, that believes the Bible puts the ultimate or the bottom level authority of who's an elder, what doctrine do we have, what's our constitution, who, who on whom does church discipline need to be exerted, all these things, how should we— ultimately in the hands of the congregation, the membership of the church, the regenerate believing laity, right? Right? Can I fire you? No. Right? No. Can you fire me? Yes. Now listen, when I worked in in a United Methodist church, you could not fire me. I get up in front of my congregation, they could not fire me. Now they could stop giving and leave and the building could go into foreclosure but they could not fire me. The bishop appointed me. I was there at the pleasure of the bishop. He could reappoint me or unappoint me or whatever, but they couldn't touch me. Because it wasn't a congregational church. This church is a congregational church. What that means is you have responsibility that uh, that Lady and other churches have not pulled to themselves. When this church was planted under this idea that we we are going to bet on Jesus working by His Spirit among the whole of our community, we are going to we are going to go we are going to live or we are going to die together. When we decided that and put it in our constitution and were formed as that community, we made a decision that everybody was playing. That's what we decided. We said everybody was playing. So at this particular kind of church, this is all the more important. Right? Now, what I want to do is run through three things. that I think if we get straight, we'll be able to smell this stuff out. Okay. So I hope you never have to use these on me, but here they are. And here's why, here's one of the, one of the reasons I'm preaching this right now is I wanna set this up because I think we're in good shape right now. Okay, that's my belief. My belief is that our elders and our deacons and our pastoral staff, which is just me, um, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I believe that we're in pretty good shape on these things right now. And I think that therefore we should talk about them right now, right? Nobody, I mean, we shouldn't talk about this stuff when things okay, there it is. So. The first is, okay, that's the scripture. The first is a biblical understanding of the gospel. Um, the gospel is extremely poorly understood today among the most devoted churches. The gospel is a very poorly understood thing. Um, and, be, and here's why. People talk about, you know, the, the drunk um, peasant on the donkey who, can, who, it's just which way he's going to fall off. There's something about the gospel where you can like fall off four different ways. I mean, there are a lot of ways to fall off of the gospel and it's, it's because scripture is very clear, our heart is not wired to love it, right? We are not, there is a, there is a way in which God's image is in us and through that, there is some appeal to how we've been created in the gospel. But there's another side of us that's dramatically self-centered, that's dramatically self-justifying, that's just dramatically self-defining, that's dramatically all these things, that does not like the gospel. And therefore, if we can tweak the gospel, shave the gospel, change the gospel, turn the gospel, we are, we are bent in that direction. Now, um, I'm going to return to all three of these examples I'm going to give in the next— weeks. So I'm going to go over them kind of fast, but you just, you're going to hear about them all the time. So you don't worry about, don't worry about, about me not. The the first is what um, sometimes I'll call barcode Christianity. And essentially this is an oversimplification of the gospel in relationship to justification, right? What we believe is, is that Jesus died in our place, The guilt and penalty of our sin was put on him. His righteousness was credited to us. And by faith, that transaction can happen for everybody apart from anything that they do, period, full stop. Right? Now, for some people, that is all the gospel they've got. That would be a little bit like building a house, building the doorway, putting all the molding up and having a door and then not building a house behind it. It'd be a little like that. You build the porch, and the steps, and the door, right? And you open the door, and you're kind of like, it's a meadow. Did you ever see them did you ever watch this? <laughs> um, a, a great example of this, have you ever seen the show Scrubs? Okay, in the show Scrubs, there's this character, JD, and he buys this lot, and he puts, on, puts a porch on it. There's no house. It's just a porch. It's his lot. He sits in lawn chairs on his porch, but there's no house behind it, right? And it, that's a little like if you believe in justification, but you don't believe in anything else about the gospel. And so what, we, what you have is you've got churches where everybody is 100% assured that Jesus loves them, and they love Jesus, and they're going to heaven, and that's fantastic, and that is essentially legitimate information to cause them to not have to care about anything else. Any other people, any— any Christian growth, any knowledge of the Bible, any, 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 any. They just—all they have is one part of the doctrine of justification unapplied to anything else, and because they know that's true, they know that everything else is not worth knowing. And it truncates the gospel into a, this little portion of it. Listen to how first peter Peter—how um, Peter explains the gospel in First Peter. He, he says— Through his divine power, he has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort that is apparently—that apparently thinks is irrelevant the fact that we can participate somehow in the divine nature of God himself? What the Eastern Church used to call divinization, what the Western Church called glorification, the idea of being in union with God, that through the gospel we can be in union with God himself? That that's not worth knowing? That we can actually be—we don't have to— That. When Jesus died for our sins, he set us free from our sins so that you don't have to do them anymore. Our sins that are ugly, despicable, horrifying, selfish, self-justifying, self-centered, that destroy all of our relationships, everything that we do, that junk up the whole world we live in, that we don't have to do them anymore. Right? That's not part of barcode Christianity. So it's very easy for us to go, Jesus loves you. Jesus wants you to be saved. Believe in Jesus. And we'll baptize you. And then, well, you've been wet, so you're done. (laughs) However, isn't it so easy to flip the other side of that? To say, well, we don't want to do that, so we're going to be so focused on sanctification or growing in faith that essentially we change the gospel into something you earn. That fast. That fast. Another one is that, is that we're constantly, the American church is constantly stuck between this question of, um, of spirituality, the sort of new age pop psychology gig, define yourself from yourself, and moralism in religion. We're always getting pushed and pulled between these two, but essentially they function on the same principles. That's one of the things that's oftentimes very hard for us to understand. The, uh, the most conservative among us culturally and the most liberal among us culturally are still functioning from the exact same principle. We just don't know it. Um, the, the sort of generally speaking, the more politically and ideologically and philosophically liberal among us function out of this libertine mentality that tends to gravitate towards self-justified psychological introspection. So good people are thoughtful people, good people are interesting people, good people are reflective people, and so on. But what that ends up leading to is a kind of spirituality that focuses on advice and techniques. It's still based on your performance but your nuanced education, thoughtfulness, and all that sort of thing is what allows you to be deep enough so that you can do the techniques and advice so that you can achieve what you want to achieve spiritually through self-actualization and so on. It's, it's still a performance-based model. It's just only smart, educated people from blue states can do it is what's thought in those places. Now, on the, on the conservative side, you tend to get moralism, right? You tend to get this idea that there are these rules, there are these demands, there are these performances that you should do, and they're clear, and if you do them, then God will like you, and if you don't, then God will not like you. And it's, it's a performance-based moralism, and the gospel is neither of those. The gospel is simply the news that you stink and God saved you. So your, your well-being is not linked to how nuanced you can understand the introspective techniques of personal psychological health so that you can live out certain kinds of relational models in such a way and be libertine with everybody else and not have any moral desires. And, and if there's, we don't put any expectations on you, then you won't feel guilty about not meeting those expectations blah, 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 and everybody will be happy and peaceful and everything will be wonderful and a new utopia will emerge and we'll all live next to a pond and write poetry. And then, <laughs> right? And then, but that doesn't work. First of all, but it's also not true, and that's and here's the thing. Whatever it is, it's not Christian, okay? Whatever it is, and wh- wh- whether it works or whether it gets you outputs you're after, doesn't matter in relationship to whether or not it's the gospel. It's not the gospel, okay? And if you believe in that, then you believe in it. But what it isn't is Christianity. It's something else, right? And we call it something new every 20 years, okay? Transcendentalism, blah, 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 whatever. But it's the same thing. It's just new name every 20 years. But, but the thing is, is that that doesn't mean that, oh, well, those are the little before. That means the conservative people are right. Well, they're just as good as being moralists, right? And both groups are functioning on the same principle, looking at each other with... with piercing self-righteous eyes, thinking the other people are horrible people, and they should just come morally uphill over to our camp. And both of them are living in very accomplishment, performance-focused models that have nothing to do with the gospel at all. The gospel is simply, you both stink, you're horrible, you have no idea how bad you are, and and the, the person who knows the deepest how bad you are is the one who loves you, saves you, desires you, freed you, and wants to change you. And he's supplying the, the he's supplying even the faith and even the power for you to change. And. He, If we have to keep coming back to not just what the gospel is, but that's one of the reasons why um, we have to talk from time to time about what the gospel isn't. Because if you do surveys on what people want to hear in church in America, they want to hear positive sermons that make them feel good. And so therefore you don't say anything negative. But here's the thing. If you don't say anything negative, you've got two problems. One, you ignore most of reality. Um, And then two, um, you cannot create contrast, which brings clarity. So everything stays hazy, right? So we don't want to slander anybody. We don't want to be unnecessarily mean. We don't want to be curmudgeons. We don't want to be overly negative, right? We don't want to be that because we're joyful people because we stink and Jesus saved us, and that's fantastic. But in order to bring clarity and know what the gospel is, so that when a Jeroboam shows up and sets up golden calves and say, "Dude, you should worship these, go, uh, buddy," I don't, I don't think you know how this works. I'm not sliding down that hill. Okay, so secondly, that's—we'll get back—we'll come back to that in another sermon. Okay, the second is a biblical understanding of the nature and purpose of worship. If we get—now, Sunday morning is not everything. There is a lot that cannot happen on Sunday morning. You cannot be completely formed into the image of Christ by coming to church on Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings have a limited application. However, if we consistently get this limited application right— It can do a lot of good. Worship is essentially the moment in which we come and acknowledge that God is God and we are not. And we emphasize that in as many ways as possible. Where we let God be God, we ask God to be God in our lives and in our community, and we respond as though He is God. And we do it together, not individually. And we do it intergenerationally, not single generationally. And we do it with lots of different tastes, cultures, colors, types, views, because the assumption is that Jesus is bringing together a kingdom from every nation, tribe, tongue, nationality, etc. Got it? So Jeroboam, when he stepped onto the scene, he took the worship of Israel in a very consumeristic, self-aggrandizing way but he didn't change it too much, right? That's always the issue. There's, you change it, but you don't change it too much. Now, one of the reasons why some scholars believe that he used the, the, the cows and stuff is because the, the Israelites in the north didn't kill all the Canaanites. I don't know if you know this, but they, they didn't completely eradicate all the Canaanites, and the Canaanites worship Baal, which is who rides the bull, who is the god of fertility. The bull is this is this picture of strength and virility and, and fortitude. And so, some people think Jeroboam was trying to meet the difference here. You, you do some sacrifices, you have some festivals, you set up altars, you do sacrifices on the altars, you have priests, you do all that gig, but you also reach out to people who don't think just like you. You, you open the tent a little wider, you bring in the Canaanites, and you, and you make your worship a little, a little bit like Baal worship, frankly. You know, and if God can be enthroned upon the cherubim, why can't God be enthroned upon big gold bulls? I mean, and you got to have something to carry out in battle. I mean, if you're going to go fight against Judah, you can't very well go ask them if you can borrow the ark to carry out to battle in front of your army to fight them. You know what I'm saying? So you got to have something to carry out there. And so, off you go. And then, you know, he, it, it was also very convenient because, you know, you had—instead of just having to go to Jerusalem, you could go to Bethel, which was in the far south, or you could go to Dan, which is in the far north. And, and if that was too far for you to go— he put high places all over the whole countryside. Any place that was high. And appointed a priest, anybody who had the means to be there. Which also, think about what that does. That also individualizes worship, doesn't it? Um, when, I, when I go to India, sometimes we'll go and we'll look at these Hindu shrines because I'm always trying to get a better understanding of how Hinduism floats. And um, one of the things that is, you can really observe about Hindu worship is it's completely individualistic. There is virtually no corporate expression. You have these different shrines, and people go individually to the shrine, and they venerate the shrine, and they make a sacrifice to the God, hoping that the God will bless them. But there's no congregational anything. People pass each other. People kneel next to each other. People offer sacrifices at the same time. But there's no communion with each other. It's completely individualistic. You can go whenever you want. The shrine's always open. You can take whatever sacrifice or offering you want. It's it's completely up to you. You can worship whichever God you want. It depends on how you want to get blessed. If you want to get blessed with luck, you go for Ganesh. If you want to get blessed with—if you want somebody to die, you go talk to Shiva. I mean, it's just, it just depends on what you want to happen. And this is one of the pulls on us, isn't it, in our culture? One of the pulls is making worship more consumer-centric, easier for us to digest, make it taste a little better. And here, here's what I, I want to say about that to us, and I think this is very important for us to think about, is that We can do some of that in the margins If we have strongly in place The things God commands There is a lot of freedom left over That I think is intentional freedom For us to have a cultural expression I think that this church Should be a cultural expression Of the cultures it represents As under the gospel Expressing the gospel Teaching the gospel Right? We're we're never going to wake up one morning And be like Let's be Latin American today It's it's just not going to happen. We're not going to wake up this morning and be like, let's do like the sub-Saharan Africa thing. We are, we are going to be a Madison church. Right? That's what we're going to be. And we can't help, we are going to be a cultural expression. When I talk about football, I'm going to talk favorably about the Green Bay Packers and the Wisconsin Badgers. That's going to happen here. And that, that would not happen. That would not happen if I was in, if I was in Manhattan, I wouldn't even talk about football. Right? If I, was in, if I was in Panama City, Florida, I would talk about how great the, uh, the University of Florida Gators were. I mean, that's, it was a different place. Do different things. They talk about snapper fishing. I don't talk about snapper fishing here because we are a culture and there is room for the expression of who we are towards God within the constraints and along the lines and with the direction and working with the fodder that God explicitly gives us for worship. Now, super quickly, here's what I think Um, that should include. I believe our worship services should be conformed to including these things very consistently. Expressions of love and and devotion towards God that are God-focused and theologically substantive. Now, they may be artistic or inartistic. Okay? They may be repetitive, which some of you don't like and some of you love. Or they may may be progressive, like a hymn. Hymn. You know, verse one builds on verse two, builds on, and some of you love that, and others of you don't like that. That's not prescribed in the Bible, right? We are allowed to give artistic expression, but those artistic expressions, whether they're repetitive or progressive, artistic or inartistic, should be God-focused and theologically substantive. Scripture should be a major part of our worship services. We should be reading scripture. We should have a sermon that exp- exposits scripture. We should participate in the ordinances, Baptism and communion, we should celebrate them. When we have baptisms, that's not a problem because we have less music. That's not a problem if you like the preacher. Oh, the preacher's going to preach for less. No, no, no. We're having baptisms. This is fantastic. Right? People have been converted. We're to celebrate this together. They're publicly acknowledging their faith. Before all of us, they're, they're crossing the line publicly, openly. That's fantastic. Communion. Communion is not a problem. Communion is not something we have to do, because Jesus said it that one time. He, and he had already had five glasses of wine and wasn't thinking through. What would happen if you had to do that all the time? That's not, the, that's, that's not what happened. What happened was Jesus wanted us to remember the gospel a lot— Okay? And so he said, do this a lot and remember what's happening tonight. Because your salvation is not a philosophy, it revolves around a particular moment in history a wooden cross where a man died, and three days later he awoke and was alive. And you have to come back to that moment to know what's happened. Right? We have to have fellowship. It's a group experience. We do this together, not individually. We should, we should pray because God should not be the unspoken premise of our gathering. He is the honored guest. He is the driver. He is the teacher. He is the lover. He is the one—we don't come and we don't read little poems about how we feel and how, how nice it would be if we were all more loving to each other. No, because God is king, we will learn to be loving and feel nice and be nice to each other. Amen. Right? There, this worship service should be a place of disinterested moral exhortation and commitment. Right? The earliest— Christian services, it was said about them. It's where people got together and pledged to not commit adultery, not steal from their employer, not, and to live like Christians. We should not be a moralistic place. We should not be a moralistic place. We're all judging each other and being mean to each other. And, and not, we don't know any of the circumstances of anything, but we just still know we don't like you. That's, that's not what I'm saying, okay? And I will preach a lot against moralism. However, there is a, 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 a wonderful morality to, G, to Jesus. He is good and he, he remakes us to be good. And this should be a place where we go, you know what? I'm not going to live like I've been living. In fact, just last week, I stunk up the place pretty bad. But I came in here, and I remembered that God is God, and that this is the truth, and I sang devotion to him, and I prayed for him to help me. And you know what? Dang it if I'm not going to go out there, and, and as much as I can in his power, live differently. I'm going to treat my kids differently. I'm going to treat my wife differently. I am going to, something's going to happen. And that commitment has to happen, and I have to exhort you to that. And we don't have church if that doesn't happen. Church did not happen. There might have been an offering. I might have gotten paid, but church did not happen. Right? And when I say disinterested, the idea there is not that it's not interesting. Okay? It's not uninterested. It's that it doesn't matter what's good for you. Right? It doesn't matter if it's good for you. It doesn't matter if you like a, th- this lady at your office. You're not going to commit adultery with her because Jesus is king. It doesn't matter if you don't, you don't want to tell the truth. You can, the truth is the truth. The king tells the truth. He never lies. He won't lie to you. That's why you can believe his promise that he saved you. Now stop lying! It doesn't matter if you want to lie. Disinterested has nothing to do with what's in your interests. It has to do with what's true, because the King is the King. And I, I'll preach on giving another time. <laughs> Third and quickly, very quickly, very quickly, is a biblical understanding of the requirements and characteristics of Christian leadership. And all I'm going to say about that, because I'm really trying to end on time, to submit to the elders who are the leadership of this church. <laughs> And I believe one of them is that Jeroboam. One of his big ploys to win was he threw out all the leaders who knew anything about the Bible. The Levites were the were the keepers of the word. They were the people who knew the Bible, knew to said, knew to talk, knew why this was not okay. And the first thing he did was got rid of them and appointed other cronies that thought like him and would support him and be his yes men. And listen, every pastor. Every pastor, including me, is going to seek to have people on the elder board with them that are not intentionally antagonistic, okay? I mean, when, when we have elders, I will advocate for us to nominate men that are not insane, okay? I'm, I, I will have an interest in who is the new elder, but, but the requ- requirements and characteristics are not—it's not—, it's not We don't appoint people as favors, we appoint men that are fit to the work, right? And they have to be the people, like the Levites, who know the Bible, who've been proven in living it faithfully, who are, who live up to the biblical criteria of leadership, which are extremely clear all through the New Testament, especially in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. It's gotten faster as I've been going, hasn't it? Yeah. So let me just end this way. Um, This did not happen in Judah. And one of the kings in in close to the time of Jeroboam was a guy named Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat did some screwing up. Okay, he did. He he made some mistakes. He he helped Israel in time when he shouldn't have and all this kind of thing. But he did some really key things that made a big difference. One, he didn't set himself up as God. Do you, do you notice one of the things you can miss in the passage about Jeroboam, the thing he did that was probably the worst next to making an idol was that he set himself up as the chief priest. Did you catch it? Three times in that passage, he steps up to the altar. He offers sacrifices. And when the, when the, um, the man of God comes and finally rebukes him and he says, sees him, he sees—it he sta- says he's standing right next to the altar where he was about to offer a sacrifice, right? It was, he was, and here's what, that's the way it was with all the neighbors. All the other nations, the king was the lead priest. That's how it worked in the ancient Near East. Because the God is strong, the God is a king, the king is strong, the king is a king, so he's the high priest too. And so Jeroboam was like, that sounds like a good idea. Right? Jehoshaphat never did that, but a couple of the other things he did. One, the other kings appointed in all the towns their princes as rulers, their sons. They gave them, they gave them towns to live in and rule over. And Jehoshaphat appointed judges, which doesn't sound like a big difference, but he actually went to the towns. It says he traveled all over Judah. He found um, people who he thought would judge fairly. And he, he didn't say, here's your job. He said, you judge fairly because when you judge, you judge in the name of the Lord. And there is no bribery with the Lord, and there is no partiality with the Lord, and there is no shenanigans. That's not the, that's not the that's what the Hebrew word says. It's not really. But he says no. There's just justice with the Lord, and he didn't appoint his princes, and he didn't appoint his cronies. He appointed judges, and then you know what he did? He went back to Jerusalem and he took the Levites and he sent them all over the countryside teaching the Bible. And because of that, the people learned the scriptures again. And they were not as easily corrupted because they knew their God, they knew their Bible, they knew their worship, they knew their scriptures. So here's, here's what I'm gonna end with. Ready for the commercial? In a couple of weeks, we're gonna be launching Christian education for the fall. We're going to have ABFs and we're going to have small groups and we're going to have these classes. We're going to have, we have different tiers of difficulty. We have different lengths of time in each one. We've got a a huge, huge spread. It's very diverse for you. But listen, if we are going to be a congregational church, if we are going to be a church that doesn't sled down the corruption hill, if we are going to smell out corruption when it's coming, and if we are going to live with the kind of vibrancy we want, we are going to have to be a people who know our God, know our Bible, know our worship, know the requirements for leadership, We are going to have to be a people growing in the knowledge of the Lord. And listen, I just don't think you're going to be able to do that unless you pay attention not just to the worship service, but to what we just call, in a very unsexy way, Christian education. Just name it something different in your mind. Name it the most exciting hour of the week. (laughs) Right? Name it the the doorway to my eternal and temporal happiness. Name, Name it whatever you want, but do it decide right now that this fall you are going to attend a class after church that is going to challenge you, that is going to deepen your faith, that is going to cause you to grow, that is going to refocus you on the Bible and the gospel, that is going to lead you to deeper obedience. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would, um, that you would lead us to be a people more like the kingdom under Jehoshaphat than under Jeroboam. We want to be a people who are taught, who know, who know how to be faithful, who are not at the mercy of our leaders. We pray, Father, that you would give us good leaders and keep our leaders godly and faithful. But, Father, we do not want to be people at their mercy. And we recognize that the covenant, the promises, the gospel was never meant to be held only by leaders and that the people would be at their mercy. But you have taught us how to be free and how to lead ourselves and how to lead our family while existing together as a community. We pray that you would make this church, High Point Church, and all the churches around us and in our city and in this nation and in this world and that our missionaries are planting. We pray, Father, these would be churches where the laity, the people of the church would know the gospel, would understand worship, would know what it means to be a Christian leader, and would be taught the scriptures And that from that, such blessing would come (coughs) that we would never for a moment doubt the worthwhileness of seeking you. Amen. Would you stand for the benediction?